You know, folk have, prophets of old would have loved to have lived in this day and age. Uh, the time before Jesus comes back. What a, what a privilege. There was a story that I read not too long ago about a fellow by the name of Frank Zeismansky. Frank Zeismansky was a football player for Notre Dame back uh, in, 19, in the 1940s. And he played as center and probably to the right of that a little bit or the left of that occasionally. Frank was an excellent player for Notre Dame and could easily uh, have let it certainly go to his head. But he was known for being modest about his abilities and the skills in his game. One day Frank had been called to, the, to witness a civil suit in South Bend, Indiana. When he was called to testify, the judge started asking him questions. Are you on the Notre Dame football team this year? Yes, Your Honor. What position? Center, Your Honor. Continuing to inquire, the judge asked his final question. How good a center are you, Frank Zeismansky? Now, Zeismansky kind of squirmed in his seat because he was known for not liking to brag on himself. But he responded and said, Sir, I'm the best center you've ever had. Well, now his coach, a man by the name of Frank Nehi, was in the courtroom that day, and he heard Zeismansky's response, and naturally he was surprised. He knew Zeismansky always to be unassuming and modest, so when the proceedings were over, he went over and he took Zeismansky aside, and he asked him, why, Zeismansky, why'd you make such a statement? Well, Zeismansky blushed, and he said, well, I hated to do it, coach. After all, I was under oath. When, when, friends, when you've got to tell the truth, you've got to tell the truth. And telling the truth is necessary, especially when it has to do with correcting a misconception about the kingdom of God. Now, if somebody were thinking, were, were to think certain things about God's kingdom and what they thought was wrong, it would be most definitely uh, important and imperative to make sure that the person has a right conception of the kingdom of God, or else that individual could be led astray. It could cause a person even perhaps to be lost. That's why when Jesus was here on planet Earth, he made, up, made every attempt to clear up any misconception anybody had regarding his kingdom. That's why Jesus wasn't about to let people think something different when it had to do with the matters or matters of eternal consequence. And he did this, of course, through the use of parables. We've been talking about some of Jesus' parables. To help fallible mankind get a grasp on eternal realities, Jesus used comparisons. He used some form of attachment. He placed one thing by the side of another to be sure that no one would be confused and left out of the picture with regard to the most important subjects delivered to mankind. Now, I want to take you to another parable here this morning. You've got your Bibles. So would you turn there with me to Mark chapter 4, and we want to take a look here. In this particular instance, Jesus is seeing he needs to set the score straight, so to speak. Uh, he again needs to tell the truth about the nature of his kingdom. And it was really for his disciples that he was giving this explanation. He, uh, he gave this illustration to those who had called upon his name and had pledged themselves to his cause, hopeful in seeing the kingdom of God grow and taking on more citizens than were presently there as they, as they thought were there. 
Now, if Jesus gave a wrong explanation here, it could cause them to become easily discouraged and dispirited, unenthusiastic about what they signed up for. Actually, it's likely they were already beginning to wonder whether being connected with this controversial teacher was such a good idea. They might have been asking why more people weren't signing up like they had. Why were there only a handful of them when there should have been many more? Because isn't this man about to establish his kingdom here on earth? And it's likely that if the disciples were questioning the size of their group, no doubt they were being influenced by the religious leaders of the day. These religious leaders uh, wouldn't have been careful to keep their thoughts to themselves about this new teacher and this band of new disciples. So you can probably imagine that the, uh, the, the leaders made a little fun of the fact that Jesus only had a few followers, especially considering that they thought and uh, he had said that he was here to establish his kingdom. I mean, come on, Jesus, how do you expect what you, to do what you say you're going to do with only a handful of believers? How are you going to do these great things without wealth, without power, without prestige and honor? You know, it's kind of always the way, isn't it, when someone seems sees you cutting in on their show and you don't mean to do so intentionally. Some folk are just bent on belittling and ridiculing. They can't stand it, so they mock you and they laugh at you. And instead of moving over and making room for you, they resort to disparagement and vilification. So Christ knew their thoughts and he read their hearts of these religious folks. He, he's not about to let the jealousy of these individuals contaminate his disciples. So Jesus is going to set the score straight in this parable and encourage his followers. And you've got to love Jesus for doing that. Amen. Mark chapter 4 and verses 30 to 32. We're going to read this here together. And Jesus said, and and Aaron uh, read that fairly well here this morning, so thank you, son. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, it says, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all the branches, so, or sorry, than all the herbs. And shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Now probably this is another thing you're going to have to get used to me saying and that is herbs. Because you see that there is an H in front of the E and the RBS. And I understand folk around here like to say herbs or something and the H is silent. But it is an H and so you say herbs or at least I say herbs. (laughs) And so Jesus is sharing here with what comparison shall we compare the kingdom of God. In fact, Christ is bringing, drawing his his followers into or his hearers into consultation, as it were, inviting them to participate in the quest for truth. And he leads them to the mustard seed as they begin their journey. The mustard seed. Jesus said the mustard seed is like the church on earth. The mustard seed is like the church. That's what it is. That's what Jesus was saying. And you've got to wonder whether there could have been anything better to use to illustrate a profound truth than a mustard seed. Apparently not. And as we unravel this parable, you're going to see that Jesus couldn't have used anything better to get his message across. Now, no doubt there are some here today that enjoy their mustard, and I wouldn't want to deprive you of that. Has anyone ever heard of the Mustard Museum? It's over in Middleton, Middleton, Wisconsin. Anyone heard of the Mustard Museum? 
All right, we've got a mustard lover right here. Okay. So Mustard Museum in Middleton, Wisconsin. Now, the fellow by the name of Barry, Barry Levinson, he was the founder and the curator, he's a curator of the National Mustard Museum. And he said that uh, it came about because of uh, the Red Sox, uh, his, uh, the Boston Red Sox. Apparently in 1986, his favorite baseball team lost the World Series. And so Barry went to an all-night restaurant, or not an all-night restaurant, an all-night supermarket, trying to find the meaning of life. And as he passed through uh, by uh, the mustard in the mustard aisle there, a thought popped into, into his head. If you collect us, that is the mustard, they will come. Well, they did, and they have. Apparently, Barry's Museum Sports, get this, 5,624 mustards. I didn't even know that there would be that many. 5,624 mustards from all 50 states and from over 70 countries in the world, which would obviously make the make his collection a, uh, a sight to behold. Now, with all due respect, I'm certainly not interested in mustard. Now that, that may have been perhaps because uh, back in the day when I was young, I may have said something in front of a grown-up and instead of getting my mouth washed out with soap, uh, someone put a little mustard on my tongue and I can still taste it to this day. I don't know, but to this day, to this day, if I'm asked if I like mustard, I ask folk just to hold, put a hold please, hold on the mustard. So what was Jesus driving at in the parable? What was Jesus talking about here? The mustard seed in Jesus' day was the smallest of all the seeds sown by Palestinian farmers. Far smaller than wheat, far smaller than barley, for instance. Our mustard seed today is only about one millimeter in diameter. You know what a centimeter is and you just divide that into tens. You get one millimeter, you see. And that's how small it is. Actually, it's the smallest of all the herb seeds that there is. That's why in Jewish literature, for example, the mustard seed is frequently referred to denoting minuteness. So I'm no expert, but I understand that there are in general two types of mustard seeds. You've got the yellow variety and you've got the black variety. Both herbs are used widely in cooking, but it's highly likely that it was the black variety uh, that the black variety Jesus was referring to here in his parable that grew in, uh, in in the wild in abundance in Palestine in those days. So whereas the yellow mustard seed was a low-lying plant or shrub, not growing to more than about a, a foot or two from the ground, uh, the um, the black particular, the black variety. The black variety of, of mustard seed uh, would reach heights to about 6 to 12 feet with branches about an inch thick. So when Jesus says it grows to become a tree, which is what we read, it grows to become a tree, he's not referring to the mustard mustard's plant's nature, but he's really referring to its size, you see. For an herb bush, that's pretty big. You've seen other little herb bushes, right? Uh, what, are, what herbs are there? You've got, um, <laughs> that's all slipped, uh, you've got, th- you've got thyme, you've got rosemary, you've got oregano, oregano, um, you've got all those types of things, right? You didn't know that we said oregano, or, 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 what was it? Oregano, there it is. It's, a, it's oregano. But those are small lying sh- uh, herb bushes, right? But this thing just boof, takes off six feet, that's where I'm at, and beyond. And that's a herb tree or a herb bush, biggest of all. 
the herb bushes. Some things are probably beginning to form in your mind with regard to what Jesus is trying to drive at. Probably the first and most obvious thought that comes to mind is that the seed, like any seed, grows simply by the power God puts into that seed. Its development and its growth is not dependent upon human wisdom, upon human power, or upon human expertise. It's just not. Now, we don't know how a seed grows per se. We know that the seed must germinate, the process by which the seed breaks apart and the embryo hidden inside begins to grow with the help of water and nutrients from the soil. We also know that the plant grows and gets its food from the two processes of photosynthesis and respiration, and that that process makes food in order for the plant to grow. But what we cannot explain is how the seed knows how to do all of that. And I would suspect that it's that God would know. How about you? Sure. But keep in mind, Jesus is countering the religious leaders' mockery of this small band of believers. So what can we learn from the mustard seed right up here? Lesson number one, God's church grows by his power, not by wisdom. Not by human wisdom, not by human wealth, and not by human wonder. And I just wanted to put another W in there, but what I'm referring to here is muscle and numbers, you see. It's not God's kingdom doesn't grow because of human wisdom and power and strength and numbers and etc. God's kingdom grows by his power alone. We learn that it's, that in the principle of development are the opposite. The, the principles of development in God's kingdom are the opposite of the kingdoms of this world. Now, uh, Governments around the world succeed by the use of physical force. Uh, what we saw over in Russia and Ukraine and Crimea uh, wasn't really too forceful. It was kind of amazing, but there, there they are. They're, they've taken over that region of Ukraine. They maintain, uh, countries maintain their dominion by threats and by war. But the founder of this kingdom, his name is the Prince of Peace. You understand his kingdom doesn't resort to coercion and manipulation or force. You remember the books of Daniel and in the books of Revelation, the Holy Spirit represents worldly kingdoms, secular kingdoms under the symbol of fierce angry beasts. You've got the, the lion, which represents Babylon, and the, the, uh, the bear that represents Medo-Persia, the four-headed uh, leopard-like uh, beast, and that has the uh, uh, represents Greece, etc. So these are wild, vicious animals represented by earthly kingdoms, but Christ is revealed as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, you see. He is the meek and the mild Jesus, and his ways and plans don't fit into the ways and the plans of the world. Christ operates from an entirely different platform. In his plan of government, there is no use of brute force to compel the conscience. The Jews, of course, had hoped for that, but Christ came to implant a principle, a principle of truth and righteousness to counterwork the, counteract the work of error and sin. And quietly, almost imperceptibly, it does its work, just like the mustard seed, as it germinates and it brings forth life. Let's remember that as a church. Individuals, as we interact with our friends and family members who may not be Christians, may not know this faith. Let's remember that when leading people to Jesus. Let's remember that when seeking to share truth with folk today, that we do not force we do not coerce, we do not manipulate, we do not use the methods of the devil to try to bring about powerful results for the kingdom of heaven. We just don't do that. Christ's method 
Method and method alone is what brings true success. He sought to inspire confidence, to show understanding. He lent a helping hand to win people from the clutches of the enemy and to love them right into the kingdom of heaven. We can and we must be like Jesus in all our associations. Amen? Sure, no doubt about it. So now, lesson number two that we can learn from this parable. Lesson of the mustard seed number two. Christ's church should never despise the day of small beginnings. We'll put that up there. It is on the screen. The church of God, God's church should never despise the day of small beginnings. The parable of the mustard seed teaches us not to underestimate small beginnings. Look how something that began so small, a mustard seed, ends up becoming so big, the largest of all the herb trees. From this small seed, the smallest of all herb seeds, the largest shrub would grow. And it's simply amazing that it would be so. At first, it would send up a a tender shoot, yet strong through the earth's crust, and then it would grow and flourish until it would reach a large enough size. Jesus, of course, was illustrating his church, his kingdom here on earth. Now, admittedly, the church began very small way back there in the time of Jesus. It was relatively small and insignificant compared with, uh, let's say, Rome. And certainly Rome probably ridiculed or or dismissed Christ's kingdom. It, It appeared to be irrelevant, you see considered to be inconsequential, perhaps even just minor. These guys won't worry us at all. They probably didn't give this diminutive group a whole lot of thought. Yet in the mighty truths committed to his followers, the kingdom of the gospel, the kingdom of the gospel possessed a divine life. And because of that growth and influence, uh, its influence uh, was rapid and it was widespread by the end of the first century. The gospel of the kingdom had been taken to the then corners of the then known world. Rome wasn't thinking it was inconsequential anymore. As a matter of fact, just a little later on into the second and third centuries, great persecution came upon the early church because Rome knew her power and prestige was being threatened by the power of the eternal gospel, you see. An amazing, an amazing thing. And you've got to realize something here today, that when Christ spoke this parable, there were only a handful of followers, a few Galilean peasants to represent his new kingdom. Their poverty and minuteness were likely pressed as reasons why men shouldn't connect themselves with these simple-minded individuals who follow Jesus. Everything Everything was against the early church from succeeding. Everything spoke defeat and failure. Everything around them seemed to conspire against their growth. But if you thought that they had serious problems on the outside, if you just looked on the inside, you'd see that there were forces inside conspiring against them. You remember you had the the brothers, James and John, and what were they known as? The sons of who? Or the sons of what, rather? The sons of thunder. These guys, and then you had Peter, who was, as we know, to be impetuous, always speaking before thinking. Then you had Thomas, who doubted. That's exactly right. You had Matthew, who was sharing, and he was a tax collector. He was sharing the same room with Simon the Zealot. And the zealots at that time were Jews who just despised and didn't like the Romans' encroachment and, and the taxes that they demanded from the people. And here was one of the disciples who was that way. And then the other disciple was the one collecting the taxes. And here you got this in the church. Wow, this was a motley crew, not the, not the music group for sure, but this was a motley crew to say the least. Everything inside and outside, 
seemed lined up against them from succeeding. But my friend, the little mustard seed was to grow. And the Bible says that it was to spread its branches out into and throughout the world. And this brings us to our, is that number three? Third lesson. The third lesson of the mustard seed. If God's church meets the conditions, nothing can prevent her from growing. Nothing can prevent God's church from growing. Jesus wasn't in, in fact saying in this parable, nothing is going to able, be able to stand in the way of the growth of my kingdom. Nothing is going to get in the way. This thing is going to germinate and when it grows, watch out. Its branches are going to reach into the heavens and be a safe place, a home for the birds and a safe place for the shade for the small animals of the earth. I mean, think about it. And that's exactly what has happened. The message of Christ crucified, the message of a risen Christ, the message of, a, of Jesus, the soon coming King has reached the corners of the globe. I mean, think about it. And I'm not talking about just within the Seventh-day Adventist church, but think about those who adhere to the Christian faith. I mean, it's mammoth right across the world. Now, it's true. The, the, the Christian community around the globe, you understand, doesn't have it. It's act, act together. Uh, where Christ had only one church, now there are hundreds and hundreds of different denominations. His church is fractured and even splintered. The enemy of souls has been successful in dividing God's people. Now there's a work to be done. And of course that work is not to unify all the churches just on the pretense of unity or just to come together in love. The work to be done is a call to all of God's children out of doctrinal confusion, out of worldliness, out of Babylon, into God's last day remnant church and truth. Amen. Isn't that the work that needs to be done? Jesus said in John chapter 10, 16, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. But understand here this morning that from a few, how many people love Jesus today? Across this globe, they serve Jesus and follow Jesus, the, and, and many of them the best they can, and some knowing they ought to do better, but they serve Jesus from the smallest seed to the mightiest herd, herb, just as Jesus has said. But you've also got to know that even, even, even the work of grace in the heart even though that might begin and start small, has phenomenal, phenomenal potential for growth. Now, you may just speak a word to somebody. A ray of light might just be shed upon somebody's path. You might influence, exert an influence. And really, the question is, who can measure the results of those small things? In our own worlds, in your world and in my world, one thing definitely leads to another. The principle of the mustard seed works where we find ourselves in our homes, in our, in our families, in our workplace, in our schools. The principle of the mustard seed can work there as well. I read a story, just a kind of a heartwarming story about a bus that was bumping along in the back roads of southern United States. And in one seat, a wispy old man was holding a bunch of flowers in his hands and across the aisle was a young girl who uh, whose eyes came back and forward again to the old man and she was eyeing had her eyes on those flowers the time came for the old man to get off and impulsively as he was stepping off the bus he thrust the flowers into the girl's lap and he said i know i can see that you love flowers and i think that my wife would love it if you had them i'll tell her that i gave them to you so the girl accepted the flowers and watched as the old man got off the bus and he walked through the gate of a small cemetery where his wife was buried. Now, I'd love to see how that one thoughtful act to this young girl trickled on to others, wouldn't you? I mean, surely it had potential. What do you think? Even you throw a rock in the water, right? 
Throw a rock in the water, sure, we've all done it. Hurl it out there, splash. And what happens next? You've got what? Ripples. And some of those ripples come close to the edge of the water. One thoughtful word, one kind gesture, one sharing the love of Jesus Christ, one revived and on fire for the Savior under the power of God, through the Spirit. It just can't stay there. It can't be contained. It can't just stop right there. It's going to exert an influence. Somebody's going to be changed as a result. Someone is going to give their lives to Jesus because you do didn't keep the love of Jesus to yourself. You just cannot hold the mustard seed. You just cannot hold it back, you see. Now, the idea, the idea of not being able to prevent the mustard seed from growing leads to another fascinating uh, fact about this particular uh, parable. And this is lesson number four. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. The gates of hell. The mustard seed is probably one of the most tightly packed seeds of all. There is no place, apparently, for any air, air inside of it. And as a result, it's been known to withstand high pressure and high temperatures. Do I need to tell you this morning that Christ's kingdom, too, can withstand high pressures and high temperatures. Jesus said the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against his church. For his church in every generation, you see, has always had a very special, special work and a special truth, especially pointed and targeted for that time. It's always called for self-sacrifice, so the church can't be self-serving. It's got battles to fight and victories to win, and so you can't be slack or neither can you become faint. At the beginning, its advocates might be few, so you can't be worried about what the majority thinks. It's often been opposed by the great men of the world and by a world-conforming church, so you can't be a coward. And certainly this time in earth's history, you can't be asleep at the helm. Friends, you've got to see, if we want courage, we've got to see Jesus, John the Baptist standing there in the, alone in the wilderness, rebuking the pride and the formalism of the Jewish nation if we're going to gain courage in the Lord and to not draw back. We've got to see the first bearers of the gospel to Europe, two tent makers, Paul and Silas, small and obscure, how seemingly hopeless if you're going to be inspired to live aright for Jesus. We've got to see Paul, an old man, chained, preaching Christ in the stronghold of the Caesars if we aspire to be unashamed for Jesus Christ. We've got to see the little communities of slaves and peasants in conflict with the heathen uh, imperial Rome if you think your trial is bigger than anyone else's. I mean, look at Martin Luther withstanding the mighty church of the dark ages, holding fast to God's word against emperor, against pope, declaring, here I stand, I can do not otherwise, God be my help. If we're going to stand alone for truth's sake, we've got to look and to see these mighty witnesses standing for Jesus Christ. Look at John Wesley, even preaching Christ and his righteousness in the midst of formalism and sensualism and infidelity. If you believe the everlasting gospel cannot penetrate the lives of people everywhere, think again. Oh, my friends, with such a cloud of witnesses as these, leaving us a legacy with heaven looking on, one cannot, we cannot, must, and we must not step back or draw back or pull back. We must not take our eyes off of Jesus Christ, especially when we are so close nearing home. Despite high pressures, despite high temperatures, the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. Amen? Amen. And lastly... And lastly, the lesson of the mustard seed number five, God's people, God's people must always be fragrant and attractive. I'm talking about necessarily on the outside, I'm talking about attractive on the inside, character. 
The mustard seed is used in many places and even here as spice in cooking. And when it's broken down under high temperature, uh, it's oil gives out a subtle pervading aroma. Freshly ground mustard is a potent, penetrating dressing. It's used in the East as, uh, for counteracting uh, severe headaches, an idea. If applied carelessly, it can even cause burns. So the mustard seed is also a symbol of high potency and ever-pervading aroma. Christ was saying his kingdom, his church, his people are to be the same. The lives of his followers are to be both fragrant and effective. Now, you know, you know you've walked by individuals and you kind of stop and you go, wow, wow, that, what, what, are they, what are they wearing? That smells so nice and so refreshing. And, and then, of course, you've got, uh, you've got the, the Sears and the JC Pennies, and you go through those, you know, you're trying to get to an area in the store, but you've got to pass through the makeup and all the colognes and all the perfumes, and it just, just bombards you. It's like folk are bathing in it in there. It's pretty big. It's pretty big. God wants his church to be fragrant. He wants us to be fragrant. He doesn't want us to knock anyone's socks off by our smell, you understand. Uh, we, we don't want to be that way. We want to be potent, yes. Overpowering, no. We can be potent for Jesus. Folk should be uh, like to come into our presence, not run from it, because they can't stand our smell. But there are worse things than an all-consuming good smell, and that is an overpowering bad smell. That's right. And people can smell our odor by the attitudes that we carry. That's so true. Now, to be, a, to be an Adventist means that you believe Jesus is coming back again. Are you an Adventist this morning? Are you an Adventist? What is an Adventist? An Adventist is, is someone who believes in the return of their Savior, Jesus Christ. You're an Adventist, you see. We are people of hope. We are hopeful. And we are dedicated to Christ. And we are in the business of loving others into His kingdom. That's what it means to be an Adventist. That's a good attitude, isn't it? To be hopeful, to be encouraging, to be winsome to be uh, leading people to Jesus. That's a good attitude to have. We want to smell right. But some folk are sad ventists. They're more gloomy than cheerful, more hopeless than hopeful, and they don't smell right, and they need, therefore, the presence of Jesus. There are some folk who are mad ventists as well. Nothing makes them happy always picking on this and that and blaming the church for everything. Hang on a second. Don't, isn't it true that we are all a part of the church? You can't say the church did this. I mean, we're, we're, aren't we a part of the church? Always picking on something. People in the church never please, critical, judgmental about everything, and they don't smell right either. They need the joy of Jesus. Then there are some fadventists, fadventists, obsessed with getting the latest and the biggest and the best, caught up with the latest fashion and downloading the latest movies and the latest songs, they might not be smelling quite right either, and perhaps they need the humility of Jesus Christ. And then there are bad ventists. They're not submissive to the leading of Jesus Christ in the life, refusing to be guided by clear, thus saith the Lord. They don't smell right, and they need the grace of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, there are those that are tad ventists. 
just to get a little, they get a tad bit jealous from time to time, a tad bit mean from time to time, a tad bit worked up and committed to Jesus just a tad. They come to church a tad and they obey the word of God just a tad. They don't smell right either. And what these folk need is the fullness of Jesus Christ. Friend, we want, to be sw- we want to be smelling right, don't we? We want to be smelling right. We do. And that comes from spending time with Jesus. It comes from allowing him to transform us and to change us. and to deep- we, need a- we need a deeper experience with Jesus Christ. We need to put Christ on. What do you say? We need to put Christ on. Then we can show kindness, spill over with graciousness and exude hopefulness in a world without hope because you and I have spent time with Jesus Christ. Thank God today, thank God today that in these closing days on earth's history, the message of Christ is all pervasive. The everlasting gospel is changing lives. The eternal good news is making inroads, is making people new. Thank God that in this last generation, the parable of the mustard seed, my friends, will reach its final fulfillment. It began way back there in Palestine, a couple of thousand years ago, small band of followers believing on Jesus. It grew. The Holy Spirit was poured out the early rain and that seed germinated and it grew. And in these last days, the latter rain will fall. And this bush, this, this herb tree is going to grow and flourish and reach the fulfillment of what Jesus has spoken about in this particular parable. In this generation, the parable of the mustard seed will reach its final fulfillment. The little seed will become a tree when this last message of hope, as we read in Revelation 14 verse 6, goes to every nation, to every kindred, to every tongue, and to every people. And as it was said of those in the book of Acts, they were taking out of them, out of the Gentiles, out of the world, out of confusion, a people for his name. Friends, what a time to be alive. Amen. This is the time of the fulfillment of the mustard seed parable. What great opportunities are before God's people today. Friends, you you just got to know here this morning you just can't hold back the mustard seed amen this media was brought to you by audioverse a website dedicated to spreading god's word through free sermon audio and much more if you would like to know more about audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www.audioverse.org